Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. Today, we're shining a light on a recent bioscience special section on long-term ecological research, or as we'll be saying many, many times throughout this podcast, LTER, and the topic of climate change. Our guests are the authors of that special section's lead article, and they are Dr. Julia Jones, who's a professor of geography at Oregon State University and an investigator at the Andrews Forest LTER site, and Dr. Charles Driscoll, professor in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Syracuse University and an investigator at the Hubbard Brook LTER site. I had a great time discussing the LTER network with them, as well as the kind of particular insights that this form of research can give us into complex and long-term issues like climate change. So with no further ado, let's go straight to the interview. All right, thank you both very much for joining me today. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks, James. Okay, so just to get us started, I was hoping we could chat a little bit about um, the Long-Term Ecological Research Network, and it's celebrating its 40th anniversary. You know, uh, can you just give me a little bit of a brief overview of the history of the program? Well, it started with just a handful of sites in 1980 uh, to try to look at uh, structure and function of different types of ecosystems and what are controlling them. There are five, what we call core areas that really are the foundation of, uh, of study. So those include uh, primary, produ primary production, detrital, uh, processing, inorganic processing of materials and water, uh, disturbance, um, what are the communities associated with the, uh, the ecosystem and they were really sort of individual sites and focused and they had individual questions. And, and soon it was, you know, thought that this should be a, a network, a collection of sites. And so soon after that, it started expanding. Harbor Brook was not in the first cohort, but I think in the second cohort. And now we're up to 28 sites and it includes terrestrial sites, all sorts of different types of terrestrial sites. It includes coastal sites, it includes sort of open marine sites, includes urban sites. So it's really uh, a large uh, group of different types of sites. Um, and one of the challenges is because they're so different, it's very challenging to do cross-site activities associated with all the sites. And that's one of the reasons why this project is so exciting because we're really looking at climate change and its impacts across all of the sites. So it's uh, it's really a truly a cross-site activity. Yeah, I guess I'll just add that the LTER network is funded by the National Science Foundation, starting as Charlie noted in 1980. Uh, prior to that, there was the International Biosphere Program uh, the Andrews Forest, where I do a lot of my work, was in the initial cohort, and almost all of the sites have been funded continuously since they were initiated, although, as Charlie commented, the network has grown. Initially, uh, there was a dominance of sites, including many that had been and still are United States Forest Service experimental forest and watershed sites, and then there was an expansion to to these different types of dryland sites, coastal, urban, and then most recently the nearshore marine sites. A key thing about the long-term ecological research network, which Charlie also emphasized, is that it gives us an opportunity to think about 
how ecosystems are responding to climate change over long time scales, partly because of the length of the funding and partly because of the timing of the funding since 1980, which coincides with a period of unprecedented global warming and very high quality records about how the environment is changing globally. Right. And I want to talk more about, of course, climate change and, you know, the, the role and the value of um, long-term ecological research uh, in a moment. One thing I was, I was curious about first, though, is, you know, how big are the sites? You know, what, what generally speaking are they like? You know, are, they, are we talking about a few hectares or are they enormous or small? Um, you know, just for our listeners who are less familiar with the program. They're quite variable in terms of uh, area. I mean, I'll give you an idea. Hubbard Brook, which is a, a forest service site, it's about 3,000 hectares. So it's a, it's a pretty good chunk of land, but there are sites that are a lot larger in, uh, in, in scope, in size. And, in, and it's interesting, some sites started out with a smallish footprint, but as their interests uh, expanded, and looking at the the linkages between sort of the their initial local scale to their adjacent lands, they expanded the uh, the area of uh, of study their their footprint. Uh, but they are you know they're generally local scale uh, you know local scale ecosystems. Part of the original requirement in the first request for proposals, which is an important feature of LTER is that the researchers have to be able to show that they have control over the site in perpetuity so that experiments and observations won't be altered by, for example, a decision by uh, a government agency or a private company or something. And yet, so there are some extremely large uh, LTERs, the Florida Coastal Everglades is the entire Everglades National Park. The California current, current ecosystem is hundreds of square kilometers in the Pacific Ocean and the sites in Antarctica and in the uh, northern Alaska and other ocean sites are, are quite large. Even the terrestrial sites, which may have a core area uh, that can be a small, small in the sense of being a few tens of square kilometers, like the forested sites, Hubbard Brook and the Andrews. Those sites typically have a number of satellite research activities and uh, do cover some regional issues, uh, like NIWAT, which is in the Rocky Mountains, has activities that are uh, scattered in the Rocky Mountains and. Hubbard Brook and Harvard Forest in New England take a much broader view of their area. Thank you for that. I think it you know, is valuable for our listeners to have a little bit of a better understanding of the sites that make up the network. Um, let's talk now about LTER and the kinds of questions that it allows us to answer and you know, the kinds of things it allows us to study that you know, might perhaps be different from you know, what people would traditionally think of in terms of you know, um, single point in time research. Um, what are we able to learn through this type of approach that we're not able to learn through others? Well, I think, I think the key is the, the long-term, uh, so the really long-term questions. So a typical funding cycle is for six years, which is quite long by NSF standards. And then 
many of the sites have gone through multiple cycles. So, you know, we talked about starting some of the sites in 1980. So you're talking about, you know, a multi-decadal program. And, you know, that comes with both challenges and opportunities. Um, the opportunities are you can make measurements continuously over very, very long periods of time and see, see change over, over decadal timeframes. And, you know, the other important aspect of it, which Julia touched on, is we can establish long-term experiments. I mean, often when we do experiments, even whole ecosystem experiments, they tend to be short-term in nature. But, you know, some of the experiments that were done at Hubbard Brook initially occurred in the 1960s or, or early 1970s, and we have continued those today. So, one of the challenges is that when we initiate an experiment, it's with us over the long term. And so we have to keep making these measurements and looking at the, the long-term response to some sort of uh, disturbance or perturbation. Yeah, that's, that's really true. And many of the sites have data or records or experiments that precede when they were initially funded by the National Science Foundation. And that has turned out to be one of the big lessons of uh, LTER research, which is that if you, as you learn about the history of a site and how it changed in the past, many of the ecosystem responses in those five core areas can be linked to previous changes. And so the notion of contingency and cumulative change and the, and the fact that ecosystems don't just respond to the immediate uh, mani manipulation or perturbation, but their response has multiple timescales of memory. That has been a very key finding of LTER and one which also emerged as we talked uh, and with researchers around the network about what they were finding in terms of ecosystem response to climate change. Right. And before we get into climate change, um, I'm, I'm wondering if, if you'd answer uh, or entertain at least a, a, a bit of a personal question. What's it like as a researcher um, to, you know, kind of have dedicated oneself to, you know, research in this sort of long term way? Uh, you know, do, does one feel sort of you know locked in? Is it, um, you know, continual growing interest? It, it seems to require an enormous kind of commitment of one's you know time and, and research life, as it were. Yeah, I think that's a great question. It really you know, speaks to sort of the, um, the challenges associated with this. So I think it takes a certain type of individual to just go out and keep, see, keep making the same measurements over and over and over and over again. Um, and, you, you know, you just have to be, be quite, uh, quite patient and, and stick with it. And then if you have people who have been doing this for, for decades, and you want to continue on, you have to find someone who is willing to take it on over a significant interval. And you really need to have overlap. You need to have someone, you know, who originally started the measurements or started the experiments really train someone. Uh, but of course, everybody's different and everybody has, you know, somewhat different questions and somewhat different perspectives. But really to maintain these long-term records, you have to really be thoughtful and, and think about that transition to make sure that they, uh, that occurs and it occurs in a, in a way that the, the record, you know, remains intact and, and, and is quite, remains quite valuable. 
I, I concur with Charlie's description that intergenerational overlap is one of the challenges, but also one of the deep satisfactions of working in LTER, of uh, understanding what has been learned by previous researchers and working with younger researchers to bring them in. And it does take a certain type of personality. Another feature of LTER that I find incredibly uh, satisfying is the community. If you think about each LTER, and there are 28 or 29 that are active now, and each of them may have a core group of a dozen or a couple dozen people, but as many as 50 to 100 scientists. The LTER community is multiple thousands of people, but there is a spirit of collaboration at every scale, both within the leadership of each LTER site and then within the community of that LTER and the synergies and excitement that are generated when people present results from one aspect of a site about other aspects of a site, or when people from one site talk to people at another site about what they're finding. And the spirit of sharing and working together is really unlike anything I've experienced in any other scientific or professional science setting. Yeah, that sounds like really gratifying um, collaboration. Let's talk about another form of collaboration um, in terms of this special section and in particular its focus on climate change. You know, what does LTER allow us to understand about climate change um, that we wouldn't be able to understand through perhaps other means? If you look at the literature on <clears throat> how ecosystems are responding to climate change, because of the way much research is, fu is funded, uh, many of the papers about ecosystem responses either focus on a single species or they focus on a single episode, uh, but a tremendous amount of the why does it matter literature on climate change actually focuses on impacts to people, human health, and so forth. So the Long-Term Ecological Research Network is uniquely poised to evaluate not just how a single species is changing, but how whole communities and ecosystems are changing. And to understand that not just from a single study, a short-term study, but by looking backwards and forwards over multiple decades. It's really unusual. I'm not aware of any other set of research activities Certainly LTER isn't the only forum in which people are doing little L, long-term ecological research, but the, the connections afforded by the network, by the funding from NSF and the structure provided by these core areas and, and regular meetings facilitates uh, examination of shared questions. What would you add to that, Charlie? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's good. I, I think it, you know, each site tries to take a, a comprehensive look at the ecosystem, at the structure and function of the ecosystem, and so that we can we can do that through this uh, this effort. So it's a little bit different uh, approach, maybe a little bit more com um, comprehensive, but it also certainly increases the complexity because all these individual sites are inherently different. The other thing that presents challenges is that uh, 
the effects of climate change, climate change and its effects really play out differently at the local uh, at the local level. So you know we sort of in the way we organize this, we 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 talked about sort of the the global uh, drivers of of climate change and then how those play out into sort of climatic forcings that really um, that really vary depending on where you are, whether it's sea level rise or, or, or loss of soil moisture or permafrost melting, uh, they play out differently and therefore then the effects on uh, the structure and function of the system, you know, they, they respond to those, those forcings. Uh, so I think it's, it's a, it's a very, I, I'm, I feel really good about the framework that we, we've set forward, but it's a very, very complex undertaking but of course it's a, a it, i mean that's why we love it we're that's why we're you know interested in the in the inquiry associated with us so yeah i would like to to um riff off of what charlie just said which is that another thing that's i think a challenge in the literature about how our world is changing due to climate change is that it it may be tempting to try to draw generalizations and extrapolate them to the whole globe. But what the LTER research shows is that, as Charlie mentioned, many of the climate change effects that are documented over the long term are highly site specific. That doesn't mean they aren't important, but it means that you do need to have an understanding about the history and the processes of a site to truly understand how it is likely to respond to climate change. And so in a way, that, that could be a discouraging message, but actually we think it's a pretty hopeful one because what we think is likely is that it, it gives the opportunity of people in, in particular kinds of places to become aware of the climate change effects on their ecosystem and be motivated possibly to change their behavior. Uh, in order to counteract the undesirable consequences of the ecosystem response in their area. I think one thing that really played out in our analysis is, is the sites that are fairly remote, you know, principally in Alaska, that have you know, limited disturbance beyond climatic disturbance. So they, they've got a very large you know, signal to noise ratio. But other sites, uh, largely in the coterminous US, uh, they're experiencing climate change, but many of them have other types of disturbances. So for example, at Hubbard Brook, you know, we've had a large history of, uh, of air pollution impacts on forests and, and invasives. And, and other sites have different you know, disturbances beyond climate change. And that increases the complexity and the nature of the climatic impacts. So there the, uh, the signal is less and the noise is greater because of these additional disturbances, you know, some of which exacerbate the effects of climate change and some of which maybe mitigate the effects of climate change. So that also increases the complexity. If I may, I'll just jump in with a couple of other examples of what Charlie's talking about. For example, the effects of climate change in the Florida coastal Everglades are strongly related to the way in which freshwater 
influxes to the Everglades have been changed and how the eastern side of the Everglades, the coast of Florida, where Miami and all the big cities are, how they are operating and using water. And the coastal sites, a lot of their responses depends on how coastal development, which can exacerbate uh, changes in the coast that are not directly related to climate change. In in terrestrial sites, uh, the history of forest management, forest cutting, fire suppression has a big effect on the way in which sites are responding today, introduction of non-native diseases. <clears throat> and in the dry land sites, uh, for example, particularly in the Southwest, as we're increasingly reminded uh, so much of the effects of climate, which may be in part due to drought are also due to human population growth and uh, use and overallocation of, of water from those ecosystems. Yeah, that's a, that's a really fascinating point. And I think, you know, these examples kind of um, touch on something that resonated uh, in your article with me in particular, which is that, you know, this sort of research allows us to understand the effects of climate change in a, in a local way, um, in a way that we might not necessarily otherwise. I think, you know, most of our listeners will have an understanding of climate change in the very broad sense of uh, it's getting warmer. But understanding how that kind of plays out on a local landscape is often harder to understand. Um Pivoting a bit, let's chat a little bit about the special section in bioscience. Kind of curious if you could just give our, our listeners a little bit of an idea of how an effort like this comes together. I believe, you know, within the authorship, uh, we had representatives from all of the different sites. It sounds like a, an enormous coordination project that would not be easy to put together. So I, I'm just curious, kind of, you know, how did this one come to be? Can I start, Charlie, and then you Oh, I want to start. Oh, you start. Okay, you start. Go. No, that's a great question. So Julia's been doing this for years. She's uh, been having these uh, climate uh, sessions at these all scientists meeting. And so we were doing it the last uh, time, I think it was 2018. And afterwards, I was struck by, there are just so many very, very cool stories here. Um, and a lot of, I think, similarities, but also differences that I thought would be very instructive. And I said, why don't we see if we can do a, uh, a special issue uh, where, we, where we try to look at what we've got and, and what are the stories that are, are from that. And so, you know, Julia thought it was a good idea. And, um, and so we then, you know, tried to find people who would be willing to uh, to do this and 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 one of the challenges is how do you break these up and so we basically had four different types uh, forest and freshwater drylands coastal and and more open marine but some of the sites sort of they don't exactly fit um and that that provides some challenges but we wanted to include as many sites as possible and then we we got the folks who would be the lead authors in this, and that was a tremendous undertaking. I mean, the amount of work to do these is just unbelievable because, you know, we started this, what, four years ago, right, Julia? And uh, we've been working on it pretty consistently over that time. And uh, so really, we have a shout out to our colleagues who really did a great job, you know, and really engaging all the individual people from the sites and really shaping these uh, papers and it looked it took a lot of trial and error on what the best way to do this is so hopefully we've got a good framework 
going forward. But uh, it was a very interesting process. And I, I mean, I was very happy to participate and I learned a lot. But I think we'll, we're given the knowledge that we have, I think hopefully we're better positioned to make uh, the, you know, to do the next step. But I knew, I know Julia's uh, chomping at the bit to say a few things on this. So she's you the lead. Said, she's the leader. She's really the leader. No, you, you, really <laughs> said, you really said the key thing. I mean, I, I had been organizing these sessions since 2009, where every site would give a little talk and they were hugely popular at the all scientist meetings. We'd have a couple hundred people <clears throat> and but after listening to them a few times, I thought, right, okay, well, we're hearing these stories that have been evolving over decades now at these sites. And um, so it was really wonderful when Charlie approached me at the 2018 meeting and said, well, let's try and push this farther and, and do a special issue. And then when we were looking for people to lead the papers, a, a really striking thing about it is that uh, three of the papers were led by people who are quite senior. Two of them are, you might call, emeritus LTER <laughs> people. And Charlie and I sort of are also, we're, we're not um, actively engaged, officially engaged anymore in the leadership of an LTER. But, but the people who agreed to do it often said, that they were willing to do it be out of a sense of gratitude of being having been part of the LCER community and how important it was for their career. And the other thing that the authorship illustrated is that one of the papers was lead authored by a postdoc, and the second author is an, emerit an emeritus LTER person who has been an incredible good citizen within the LTER network and essentially gifted this opportunity to lead this paper to a postdoc, to a junior person. And so all of those dynamics, that sense of the spontaneity, the synergy, the sense of gratitude, the sense of generosity and intergenerational transfer of knowledge and opportunities are really what makes the Long-Term Ecological Research Network such a wonderful place to work and a place where these kinds of really important findings can continue, I think, to emerge in the future. I also like to, to add uh, that I think that, you know, we've been talking about doing, you know, cross-site analysis at all the sites for a long time, and we've had a very difficult time doing this. And as uh, Julia said, I think people are generally are jazzed when we have these climate sessions and we hear about what's going on. But really to advance this sort of in an, in an intellectual way and uh, and to develop and develop a framework to go forward where we can we can do I think better quality uh, cross site analysis. I think this was the big lift, and I think now and, and people are really jazzed about these papers. We've gotten so many notes from people who are just amazed at these papers and really excited about it. So I think that that's going to energize the community for sort of another group to sort of take this on and, 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 and move the process forward. So I think we're in a, we're in a good position to, to do some additional work. And I think we've got some, some pretty cool ideas about next steps that would be, uh, that would be quite useful and quite interesting. So we'll, we'll see how it plays out, but I think it's been a great process. I would, uh also like to thank bioscience because this special issue is the fourth decadal issue of 
the Long-Term Ecological Research Network. Bioscience has published a decadal issue for LTER in each decade uh, since 1990, at the end of each one. And I think that the special issues have been a very important feature for promoting synthesis and helping people understand, look retrospectively and think forward to the next decade. And they've often coincided with a decadal review, which NSF funds by an independent group to look at the long-term ecological research program and provide advice to NSF. And it's notable that the a key finding of the 40-year review, which just emerged, was that the reviewers thought that LTER is poised to do a better job on cross-site synthesis, which is what this special issue attempted. Yes, and I, I should add my thanks, um, you know, to the LTER network. This is the the second um, that I've had the opportunity to work on um, in my time at Bioscience, and I, I hope to look forward to many more. Um, but I, I appreciate, of course, your time as well. Um, thank you very much for joining me today. You're very welcome. Yeah, thanks, James. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.